By the age of 30, Alexander the Great had created one of the largest empires in the history of the world. It stretched from Greece in the west all the way to India in the east. He was undefeated in battle. He's largely considered to be one of history's greatest and most successful military leaders. There's a story about Alexander the Great in which there was a man that was part of one of his armies whose name was also Alexander that had developed a reputation for being a coward. And so they brought him before Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great looked at the man and he asked him, what is your name? And the man sort of sheepishly said, Alexander. He says, I can't hear you, you need to speak up. And so he said, my name is Alexander. He says, I, I still can't understand you, you need to speak up. And a third time he said, my name is Alexander. And he looked at him and he said, you either need to change your name or you need to change your conduct. He was, had the same name as Alexander the Great. The Great. This man was Alexander the Coward. And he said, you either need to change your name or you need to change your conduct. And as Christians, we bear the name of Christ. So how we conduct ourselves in our homes, in our community, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our schools, are a reflection upon the Lord. In 2007, the Barna Group produced a survey where they asked non-Christians why they reject Christianity. And 85% of them answered, because Christians are hypocrites. 85% were rejecting Christ because people who bore the name of Christ didn't look like Christ. Some of us need to either change our name or change our conduct. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter's writing to the church and he tells them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people for his possession, so that you would proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He said, you are all of these things, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, you are set apart so that you would proclaim the praises of the God who saved you. In the old King James Version, it says that you are a, a peculiar people, is the translation there. A peculiar people. He says you're a little bit different. You look different than the world. That's what it means that you're a people for his possession. That they were set apart from the world. And the problem is, is not that we are too peculiar. It's that we look too much just like the rest of the world. And so today as we continue our series through the book of Hebrews, we come to Hebrews chapter 13. We're rounding up this letter that was written to a group of of Jewish background Christians that were considering turning back from Christianity and returning back to Judaism. 
And throughout the letter, he's been making an extended argument as to why they ought to remain and, and continue in their walk with Christ because he offers us a better hope. And today, as we come to the end of the letter, he's calling them to have better conduct. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you'd stand in honor of God's word if you're able. To Hebrews chapter 13 in verse 1. The word of God says, Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. Thank you. You may be seated. As we study this passage of scripture this morning, the action step for us today as we apply God's word into our hearts is this, that we would display the gospel with our conduct. That we would display the gospel of Jesus Christ by the way that we live. And so as we look at this passage, we're going we're gonna to break it down into two points. The standard of conduct and the motive for our conduct. And so we'll begin with the standard of our conduct. And really chapter 13 is flowing out of the end of chapter 12 and verse 28. In 12, 28, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. He says we can serve God acceptably. So how is it that you and I are to serve God acceptably? As you read through the New Testament epistles, as you read through the Gospels, they are filled with teaching. They're filled with examples of how followers of Jesus should live. And as we move into chapter 13, the author of Hebrews gives us several instructions. And all of these commands are showing us a standard of conduct. This is how followers of Jesus are set apart from the world. This is what makes us a peculiar people. And it's clear that our lives are to be a reflection of the God that we serve. They should be a reflection of his gospel. 
And so there are these rapid-fire instructions that he gives here. He's moving from one subject to the other quickly. But as you take all of it, it's painting a picture for us. And he's saying, look like this. As a follower of Jesus, look like this. These instructions are all all given with the admonition to continue, to remember. You see that repeated all through these instructions. And so he's telling them not to just do this one time. He's telling them to do this all the time, to continue to do this, that, that this should be your habit, this should be your character, this should be your lifestyle as followers of Jesus. So let's look at these instructions that he gives us in verse 1. He says, let brotherly love continue. Now, you can't speak about serving God without showing love to other people. And the love specifically that he's talking about here is the Greek word phileo, which is translated as brotherly love. And and so the brothers that he's talking about is the church. He's saying to us, you ought to have love for the church. It ought to continue. Be faithful in ministering to others in the church. Show love. Show commitment to one another. Serve one another. Teach. Pray, worship, work alongside one another. Be faithful in the work. Be steady. Don't view it as just some one-time thing that you do and then move on. As a body of believers, we all are committed to one another. We're tied to one another by the love of Christ. We've covenanted together to be part of this local fellowship. And for many, commitment to one another in the church is at an all-time low. You see, we're not just a random group of people who showed up at the same building. We are brothers and sisters who are here for one another. So he says, let brotherly love continue Verse 2, he gives us another instruction. Don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Now, a lot of people read this verse with skepticism. They go, what is he talking about, entertaining angels without knowing it? But when you look through the Bible, this occurred in Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham. It occurred in Judges chapter 6 with Gideon. It occurred in Judges chapter 13 with Manoah. It happened a lot of times. And so if, if you believe in the supernatural, it could certainly still happen today. Do we believe what the Word of God says? Yes. So it certainly could still happen today. But I think the key in the verse is that we're not to neglect to show hospitality. He says, sometimes you'll entertain strangers that you don't know. It could be angels. But the key is that we're to be steady in reaching out to people you don't know. That you're hospitable to strangers. That means that we're showing hospitality to those outside the church. That first instruction was about showing brotherly love, that we're loving one another. Now he's telling us to show hospitality to strangers, to people that you don't know. And we show them the love of Christ so that they would trust in him and that they would be saved. 
And that they would be welcomed into the fellowship, into the brotherly love. And so hospitality for us is much greater than a southern trait. It is a gospel witness that we would show to a lost world. Because lost people are not our enemy, they're our mission field. And so he calls for us as Christians to not neglect to show hospitality. The third instruction in verse 3. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. And the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Now it's interesting that he, he tells them to remember those in prison because back in chapter 10, verse 34, he was commending them for it. He says, you sympathize with the prisoners, accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. And so he had commended them for doing this prior in this letter. And so it's something that they were already doing, but he's calling for them to remember it to continue in it, to not stop doing it. And it's about more than just prisoners. He says, and to those who are mistreated. He's talking about people who are helpless. He's talking about people who are vulnerable. It's about standing up for those who are unable to do so for themselves. It's about speaking up for the unborn. It's about caring for orphans. It's about taking care of widows. It's about caring for those who are bullied. It's about ministering to those who are down and out, to the addicted. You see, Jesus didn't overlook outcasts. He looked for them as you read through the Gospels. And so we are to also continue in our ministry to those who are the mistreated. The next instruction is found in verse 4. Marriage is to be honored by all. The marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. When you look in the New Testament epistles especially, we see marriage used as a picture of the gospel as a picture of the love that Christ has for us. And so we can't talk about serving God without talking about marriage, about our own families. For example, in Ephesians 5.22, he tells wives to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He tells husbands in verse 25 to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so marriage is a covenant that is established by God. It's one that's esteemed by God. And so for us to continue in this sort of marital love, it's a requirement that you find in the New Testament for pastors. It's a requirement that you find for those that would serve as deacons. He tells us that this is something that would be honored and revered and respected by everybody in the church here in this passage. Because marriage is a, a spiritual promise that we are to keep. It's not a secular contract that you throw away when you get tired of it or when it gets hard. We fight for our marriages. We pray for our spouses. We forgive one another and show grace 
to one another when we're wrong. We work together so that our marriage would glorify God. Because your home and your family is your very first order of ministry. Your wife or your husband is your first area of service. Your children have been entrusted to you by God. And so that means that Christian families should function differently and look different than the world does. That the statistic of divorces among Christians should not be the same as those among those who are not Christians. But it is because we're not a peculiar people. So we have to be faithful to serve our families, to help them to grow in their faith. Verse 5, we find another instruction. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Now, Jesus tells us that you cannot serve two masters. He says you cannot serve God and money. Here, the author of Hebrews is calling for us to trust God, that you're going to believe that God is going to be faithful to us, that instead of loving money, instead of wanting more and more and pursuing money, never being satisfied, he says that we ought to be content with what we have and trust God who provides for us because he says I will never desert you or ever forsake you but a lot of times the the greed the ambition for more among believers looks just like it does among a lost world because we're not really a peculiar people verse 7 remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. And so he tells the church to follow their leaders. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 says, We ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you to regard them very highly in love because of their work. And be at peace among yourselves. And so what, what he's saying here is for, for those whom God has placed in positions of leadership and of authority, that they ought to be honored. It doesn't mean that you agree with every decision that they ever make, that you bow down before them, that you put them up on a pedestal or anything like that. But he says you ought to respect them. And he calls for people to remember them and to imitate them. And so if you have leaders who love God and who serve God and who are faithful in these areas that we've been talking about, they're leaders that ought to be honored. Now for those who are in positions of leadership, the author of Hebrews is reminding us of our responsibility to lead well. Because he calls for the church to carefully observe the outcome of our lives and to imitate our faith. And so that means you need to have conduct that's worthy of imitation. And so these leaders include 
pastors, you hear me, pastors? You hear me, deacons? You hear me, connect group leaders, women's ministry leaders, children's ministry leaders, youth ministry leaders, men's ministry leaders? You hear what I'm saying? If you're going to be a leader, you need to have a faith that's worth imitating to challenge people to grow in their walk with the Lord, being faithful to God and to his word, to be a peculiar people. So why is it that we have this standard of conduct as followers of Jesus? The answer is there in verse 8. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. We're not going after a moving target. They haven't moved the goalpost. The standard of holiness has always been the same. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so if there's anyone who's truly faithful, who's truly steadfast, it's Christ. He doesn't change. And he is our example in faithfulness. He is our source of strength and godly conduct. And so we can be faithful in brotherly love and in hospitality and in ministering to others and in marital love and in trusting God and in leadership because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we then ought to display his gospel with our conduct to be a peculiar people. And so we see first the standard of conduct he, he gives all these instructions and says, this is what you ought to look like. This is how you ought to be different. But then he moves secondly into the motive of our conduct. Because you see, once you get past verse 8, that the, the, the passage sort of shifts. It begins to describe why we behave the way that we do. You remember the old bracelets, what would Jesus do? One through eight is what would Jesus do? When we get to verse nine, it's why would Jesus do it? It's why, why would we conduct ourselves in this way? Because the, the Jews would certainly believe that their behavior ought to honor God. And as Christians, we, we believe the same thing, but the motive behind it is entirely different. The Jews believe that that they had to keep the law and to honor God. As Christians, we believe that Jesus kept the law perfectly and we honor God through our faith in him. You see the difference? And so how then does our conduct relate to all these laws and sacrifices? In verse nine he says, don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings for it's good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. So the author of Hebrews here is making specific mention of a teaching that was confronting these early Christians. And as we've said throughout this series, these were Jewish background Christians that are, that are being that are being uh, persecuted, they're being, they're being tempted, they're being drawn back toward Judaism. And so there are these Jews that have rejected Christ and they're calling them to come back to ritual Judaism. That's why he mentions the teachings about foods. 
And so the argument, from the argument that he's making, we can surmise what sort of things that they're saying to these Christians. They're being told, you need to adhere to these dietary laws. They're being told that Christianity is inferior because they don't have an altar to worship like we do as Jews. But the author of Hebrews responds to these criticisms in force in verse 9. He says, it's good for the heart to be established by what? By grace. That's, that's the foundation for us as Christians. It's the grace of God. Not, he says, by food regulations. It's not by you keeping the, the laws. It's not by you eating this thing and not eating that thing. He says, it's good for your heart to be established by grace. We, we who, who have trusted in the grace of God in Christ Jesus have found salvation. Those who are so occupied with food have not benefited. He says, these Jews might have an altar that the priests minister to at the temple, but in verse 10 he says, we have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. What's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. In the Old Testament, the altar was the meeting place between God and man. But he says that place for us is now Christ. He's the mediator between God and man. Christ is the altar at which Christians come to worship. But he doesn't stop there in showing us how we have a better hope. This is where it gets really good in verse 11. He says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought to the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. And so he goes back to these Old Testament ritual sacrifices that were made on the day of atonement. When the priests would make sacrifice for the sin of the people, they would bring that blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and they would sprinkle it there on the Ark of the Covenant, on the, the mercy seat. And then that body of the sacrificed animal would be taken outside of the camp and burned. And so on the Day of Atonement, this was the ritual sacrifice that took place. If you look back in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, we see a description of it in Leviticus 16, verse 7. He says, next he will take two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And after Aaron cast lots for the two goats... One lot for the Lord and the other for an uninhabitable place. He's to present the goat that's chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. This is the one that the blood is sprinkled at the mercy seat. But the goat chosen by lot for an uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness for an uninhabitable place. So one was slaughtered and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The priest would cry out to God to show mercy for the people because of the blood of the sacrifice. But then there was the second animal. And one author says that the, the Lord would have his people know by personal experience that what had taken place secretly he appointed a ceremony to publicize what had been affected by the blood on the mercy seat. The public ritual stresses the truth of substitution. They would lay their hands on the animal's head, expressing the transfer of sin 
from the guilty to the innocent so that the latter would become a sin bearer, that they would bear the atonement and put sin away, and the sin bearer would go never to return into the wilderness. They would send that goat out into the deserts, and the people would, would boo and hiss at this animal as it went out because it was a picture of all their sin, and it was going away. This is where we get the concept of the scapegoat from. That's what this is. And so it would go out into the wilderness, and outside the camp is unclean. Inside the camp is clean. And the scapegoat would bear their sin far away out into the desert place. So look at verse 12. Why is this important? Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. What do we learn in the Gospels is that Jesus carried the cross outside the city gates. They give us that detail in the, in the Gospels for a reason. He carried the cross outside the city gates to Golgotha where he was crucified. And the people mocked him and booed him and hissed at him and chastised him there as well. And so in Christ, we have both the fulfillment of the animal who was sacrificed and whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And in Christ, you have the fulfillment of the scapegoat who goes outside the city to bear away the sins of the people. Then you get to verse 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. Now for the Hebrew people, the day of atonement was this enormous relief because it was the picture of their sin being removed from them as the blood was being sprinkled on the mercy seat and they saw this animal going out, bearing their sin into the wilderness. And they felt such relief because their sin was being dealt with. But you would never go out there to that animal. Outside the camp was, was unclean. Inside the camp was clean. And so the author of Hebrews is giving this interesting command. He is saying, let us go outside the camp to him, bearing his disgrace. So instead of rejoicing in the shame of the scapegoat, he says we're to go to him, to identify with him, bearing his shame, because he is our only hope. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Peter says, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you would also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Having that name. We're to rejoice in the blood of the Lamb of God because it is our peace and our joy and our salvation. So why is it that we behave the way we do? We saw that standard of conduct, what, it, what we ought to look like, but why ought we to look that way? What's the motive of our conduct? It has nothing to do with earning favor. It has nothing to do with our self-righteousness, and it has everything to do with honoring our Christ who redeemed us and saved us from our sin. 
the one who shed his blood to make us clean, the one who bore our sin and our shame outside the camp. We live for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says, He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And so we offer our lives as a living sacrifice unto him. We say, for me to live is Christ. And so our conduct is about worshiping our Lord who is worthy. So what about your life isn't bringing honor to Christ? Do the words of your mouth glorify God? Do the thoughts in your mind exalt the Lord? Do your actions point to your Savior? Because if they don't, you either need to change your name or you need to change your conduct. And we need to display the gospel with our conduct. So Christians today, that's our action step, to display the gospel with our conduct. And so maybe as you look over your life, you recognize that there are things that, that are there that, that shouldn't be. Things that are there that don't match up with what the word of God says. The good news is that we have a high priest who is faithful to cleanse us of unrighteousness, who's faithful to forgive us if we'll call on him. And so maybe you need to spend some time in prayer at this altar this morning or there at your seat this morning saying, Lord, I know that you've called us to be a peculiar people. You've called us to be set apart from the world. You've called us to look different, to display your gospel with our lives. And Lord, these are things in my life that aren't right these are things in my life that, that aren't true. These are things in my life that don't honor you. And I want to repent of those things today. I want to confess those things to you today. Lord, I want you to forgive me and to cleanse me today. There may be others here this morning who need to call on Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life for the first time. You see, I was just telling all these Christians that they can go to Jesus and find forgiveness, and they can because they've, they've sought after him as their savior and as the Lord of their life. Today, you can have that same hope if you'll call on Jesus to forgive you because he is the one who shed his blood to pay the price for your sin. He is the one who bore our sin away outside the city gates and died in our place. And because he did that and rose from the dead on the third day, today you can have hope and you can have forgiveness. You can have life if you'll trust in him by faith to save you. And so in a minute as we stand and sing, there's going to be leaders here across the front to pray with you, to counsel you, to talk with you about this decision. And if this is what God is speaking into your heart, then you come. But however the Lord is speaking to you, now's the time that we would be doers of this word and not just hearers only. Let's stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. God, we thank you today for your word, for the challenge that you have put before us. Lord, to be a people who are peculiar. Lord, that we would have better conduct 
Lord, that we would strive for the standard of holiness that you have presented to us in your word. God, that we would do that as an act of worship and to honor you and to point people to Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for for Christians here today, Lord, that we would truly examine our hearts, Lord, that we would truly be humble and repentant and confess, Lord, where we don't measure up and where we fall short. Lord, that our lives would be a reflection of the gospel. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who need to to trust in Jesus for the first time. Lord, that they would take that step of faith this morning to call on you for forgiveness and for salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.